Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. Well, hello and welcome to a very special edition of the PK Podcast. Today we are focusing on the West Coast U.S. ports conflict, uh, which is creating historical chaos in shipping and international trade. The primary issue is a labor conflict in the major ports on the U.S. West Coast, which handle more than half of the country's sea freight, 70% of imports from Asia. Uh, It's been described as the worst in history in terms of delays and consequences for carriers and shippers. My name is Jonathan Irvin, president of Branded Logistics and co-founder of Order Commander. I'm joined today with fellow Promo Kitchen chef Jason Lukash. Jason is the co-founder of Origadio. Also joining us today is Jane Sorensen, Vice President, Customs and Import Services with Siva Logistics. Jane comes to us today with over 30 years of industry experience. She joined Siva Logistics a little over a year ago from FedEx Trade Networks, where she was the general manager for the Central Region. Jane's professional experience includes positions such as Import Gateway Manager, Branch Manager, Regional Director, and Vice President at companies including Fritz Companies, BAX Global, and Excel Global Logistics. Jane is a licensed customs broker, certified customs specialist, and currently serves as president of the Chicago Customs Brokers and Forwarders Association. She's also a member of the National Customs Brokers and Freight Forwarders Association, both volunteer nonprofit organizations dedicated to providing education, training, and lobbying in support of the United States freight forwarding industry. Welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thank you very much. So let's jump right in. Jane, if we could start with some general context and overview of the disputes and general consequences that are ensuing. The conflict has been ongoing since last July, and every year or two we'll find ourselves in the ILWU negotiations again. Unfortunately, this time has lasted longer than any time I can remember, so now we're into month nine of the negotiations between the PMA and the ILWU. And Jane, just to clarify, the ILWU, for people that aren't familiar, stands for what? The International Longshoremen and Warehouse Union. Yes, it's It's just the union for all the guys working down at the docks, right? Right. Yeah, they're a very powerful group. You know, we rely on them heavily. We find them well paid. And yeah, I, I was going to say, I saw online the average salary for someone working down at the docks is about $147,000 a year in California. Right. So adding to our distress when they try to work slowly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the general conflict is a labor dispute with the labor unions and the ports themselves. Is that, is that accurate? That is correct. And as far back as last summer, part of that surrounded the extra expense to the union workers for the Cadillac tax associated with the Affordable Health Care Act. However, that hurdle was crossed, and now there have just been a series of various issues relating to their contract renewal that have not been settled. And, you know, we in the trade are left with the challenge of the very slowly moving cargo. Adding to that, we've gone through in quarter four the peak season, and now we literally have vessels stacked up off the coast of Los Angeles into the Pacific Ocean that are unable to disembark and unload. Specifically related to the shutdown that happened over the weekend, or is that just part of the overall dispute factors? 
That is part of the overall dispute factors. We have been providing regular updates to our customers, and you can find some of these updates on sites like the Journal of Commerce. There's some Los Angeles associations, such as the Long Beach Post, that publishes articles addressing current events. But it's the gradual building of cargo and backlog that has arisen over months of the slowdown and then adding to that the peak season volumes that typically happen between, say, September and December. You're seeing it's not just Southern California that's affected now, too. We're talking the whole West Coast, right, even Oakland and Vancouver and Seattle, correct? Yes, we are, because for several months now, importers have recognized the backlog in Los Angeles, so many alternate routings have been explored and utilized as options, such as San Francisco or Oakland. Portland has also had very serious backlogs in, in recent months because of its utilization as an alternative to Los Angeles. We even have some routings going into Monterey, Mexico, and coming up north across the border to get into the Midwest. Have we seen any movement through the Panama Canal and into the, the East Coast ports, or is that something that haven't quite made its way into the fold yet? Yeah, we have seen some of that. I know the Port of Charleston has recently said they're not having much in terms of backlogs. There have been some routings over the Norfolk area in the middle of the East Coast, JFK, and some into Houston. Not as, as heavily used as the West Coast alternatives, but, but still much more heavy than they had been in the past. Jane, for... Um Someone listening that's not really familiar with transit times, for a normal shipment out of Hong Kong to Los Angeles, what are we looking at on the ocean? About two weeks on the ocean usually, right? Yes, and we are seeing average dwell times from the time of arrival of a shipment at the West Coast, especially L.A., to availability is three weeks, 15 days. And that is applying both to full container load cargo as well as less than container load cargo. So pretty much it's taking longer for a shipment to become available just sitting in the dock in L.A. than it does to go across the ocean from Hong Kong to L.A., correct? Yes. And for someone else that's, I guess, not familiar too, on a normal shipment from Hong Kong to somewhere on the East Coast, what are we looking at typical transit time? Probably something around 28 days, 20, 25 maybe. So I guess the East Coast that are operating in normal capacity right now, you can get something sent in in about a month, right, start to finish from Hong Kong to when it gets to Charleston or Norfolk on the East Coast, right? Right. And if you have, let's say if you have a, a bit of a delay in, in New York, which is typical, especially during peak season, I would say, you know, you'd still have even a, a week or seven or eight days, you're still going to, you know, improve your transit time over routing into Long Beach now. Right. And is there cost implication compared to East Coast versus West Coast? I know it's different per commodity and dimensional weight, but typically how much more would someone on average be paying for an East Coast shipment, would you say? Uh, I would take a guess. That's not really something I'm dealing yeah. with every day, but I would say maybe five to $700. Right. So a lot of people now, I think it's best to maybe, you know, for California companies, ship to the East Coast and then truck it across back to the West Coast to get stuff in quicker and actually probably more reliable because we see this getting worse probably in the future, right? 
Well, in addition to the five or $700 that you might have on the container cost going into JFK, then you would have the trucking expense to run it back to Los Angeles area if that's where you were located. You know, so that's why we try to look at routings into Houston as an alternative because you'll have, you know, less backtracking that way. Yeah. Jane, are there, are the air freight carriers looking at this and are they seeing it as an opportunity to capitalize on, on more air freight to be sort of a, a short-term resolution? I mean, is it a viable short-term alternative to ship in by air? You know, can, can the cost differences be justified or, or are the air freighters even trying to aggressively go after this opportunity and lowering costs or are they, they holding the same? What, what can you tell us about the air alternatives? We do see in the marketplace customers making use of air as an option. Obviously, a first choice would probably be to put more orders in the pipeline and, and really to have done that starting several months ago. So, for example, if you order once a month or once every couple months, you would want to increase your ordering intervals to keep more cargo in your import supply chain to keep your customers or your manufacturing satisfied. Alternatively, sometimes that's just not enough, and in order to meet customer or manufacturing demands, importers are using air freight. And with the recent weeks that we've just had, we finished peak season up to Christmas time, then we usually have a little bit of a lull, and then we have another peak season before we head into Chinese New Year's, which is the 19th of this month. So there's usually a strong push of cargo, a lot of cargo coming into the supply chain, both ocean and air, leading up to peak season. This year, pricing on air freight was impacted because more cargo came into the air freight supply chain. So even within about a two-week difference, if a forwarder was quoting air freight and maybe the customer you know, didn't decide that they had to go that route yet, and a couple weeks later tried to make a booking, the price per kilo was going up because the demand was higher. There is a backlog of air freight now out of Hong Kong, let's say. I don't have tonnage information right off the top of my head. But, you know, once February 19th happens where Chinese New Year goes into effect, people go home and take their vacation the backlog of air freight will clear out in the next few days. And usually we have a relatively soft time the second week after that. The first week, we're still going to be very busy in the U.S. because all of the orders that are either coming ocean or air are being moved, so our volume is high. The second week, when Chinese are back to work, there's nothing to ship that week because they didn't make anything the prior week. Right. So, yeah, we are seeing a boom on the air freight as a result. And we obviously forwarders quote as, as low as they can, but it's really a supply and demand type of scenario with the carriers, with the air carriers. So, Jason, let's focus this in a little bit on the promotional product industry and the impact there for a minute. And, yeah. and as a supplier in the industry, are you making any recommendations to distributors in terms of what products they're looking to present to their customers? Is this having any impact on any of your custom products that you would generally produce overseas rather than domestically? Take it from that spin for a little bit, Jason. 
Yeah, Jane knows where we're at on this. We're we're hurting over here. You know, we bought very heavy leading up to Chinese New Year to anticipate, you know, a shutdown in our factories. One thing that people don't really know is that after Chinese New Year, actually, from a factory standpoint, is there's a huge drop in the workforce. Almost half of the workers don't come back to most of our factories after Chinese New Year due to multiple reasons. One being, you know, they go back to their hometowns and talk to other friends who are working in different factories higher wages, getting sick of making the same product. So we see a slowdown almost of six weeks after Chinese New Year. So we bought heavy and now we're hurting. We're we're pretty much out of a lot of stuff or a lot of our different items right now. We're making alternative recommendations for customers that need quick turn things. We're trying to move product that's sitting in our warehouse by discounting it and we're trying to help out our distributors as greatly as possible. But yeah, we're we're hurting really, really, really bad almost and we're trying to figure out when the end game is coming and hopefully there is one, you know, with Perez being sent out to try to help, you know, the negotiation between the union and the shippers. And right now it's not looking too pretty for Oregadio for this month. Well, let's hope that those talks and resolutions happen quickly. Jane, what, what do you think the lag time is between a successful, if we can get to one here, successful resolution and sort of the time delay between when that is put in place and when we can see sort of life back to normal or or do we get life back to normal? We hope we do get life back to normal pretty soon. I, I mean, in the trade, I would say, first of all, the government's engagement and stepping in is much later than normal. And I believe that may be because there is a pretty close alignment between union and the current administration. There's still some tough talks going on by the union indicating that they want certain controls and if maybe if they don't agree with the arbitration, they're going to kick them out, you know, that sort of thing. But usually what happens is when the government gets involved and begins to arbitrate, we get closer to resolution. So we're hopeful that we're going to have much faster resolution. What could that mean in time? I really don't know yet, and let's say hopefully we might see something in the next couple or three weeks to conclusion. Then we still have customers currently in the trade that are looking at keeping their contingency plans in place for as much as three months because they want to make sure that, you know, the glut of cargo clears out, that the solutions are sustained and so forth before there's going to be a a heavy utilization and confidence in Long Beach again. What about direct cost impacts? I mean, are we seeing rate hikes? Are those spikes temporary or will we see the cost factors impacting the long term as well? Well, you know, this market and supply chain is largely dictated by supply and demand. So we have heavy cost impacts to importers right now. Those cost impacts can come in the form of maybe not the ocean freight rate, but surcharges that are being applied by truckers, for example, and surcharges that could be applied by steamship lines because they're not able to turn their equipment as fast as they normally can Normally, you know, the goods come into Long Beach port, they unload within two days, normally, tops, and once those containers are delivered and empty, they're returned back to the port, and they can go out full again with an export load, or they're returned empty, perhaps, to the origin because of a trade imbalance and the cargo is reloaded. So... 
let's say approximately every time the ocean container goes across the water, it's going to earn somewhere in the neighborhood of three or $4,000, depending on which way it's going. When the containers are sitting on the ship's Pacific Ocean or at the dock too long, this is three weeks where that container was not able to earn any money. So that's why certain kinds of surcharges occur. And then the other thing is once the cargo docks in Los Angeles, and once it's made available, then we are seeing more charges in terms of storage and detention and demurrage, different charges from the steamship lines or the piers that can amount to twenty or $30,000 if you have multiple containers on a, on a single bill of lading, for example. So the, the impact currently going on to the import trade is pretty severe. Hopefully that yeah. would subside once the glut of cargo is gone. Yeah, the statistic is that, you know, $2 billion worth of cargo moves through those ports every day. And I think a lot of people might see some of their business being affected, but people don't really understand how much stuff really truly goes through there. You know, like Honda is slowing production, cutting some of their production lines and their plants here in the States because they can't get parts in. Subaru's flying stuff in daily, and they're going to see rate hikes for some of their parts and production lines, and I think people just don't really understand the true economic impact of this thing. It's huge, right? Yes, and, and we'll find sometimes the labor unions are claiming that they're not slowing down. And, and, and you know, anybody on the ground who's trying to get cargo through the ports knows that's not, not true. They will also shut down for a variety of different types of issues. On occasion, the PMA and ILWU may decide to slow down new incoming cargo just to be able to try to clean out the port because it gets to the point where there's so many containers sitting around, you can't move. Yeah. So you have to stop new incoming in order to keep more cargo coming out. We also have related and somewhat resulting very limited amount of truckers. Truckers are really busy. And the security requirements for truckers have increased. Truckers are suffering because they're sitting for hours waiting to pick up a load once we've been told that it's ready to pick up. So it's a whole domino effect that's happening in the trade. On rail as well, as you mentioned, the truckers, is, is rail being impacted? Yes, it is. You know, I'm based in Chicago, and so all of our cargo comes in on the rail to Chicago. Many of the companies that I've worked for actually handle more ocean cargo, ocean import cargo in Chicago as a gateway compared to Los Angeles, and that is certainly the case now because of the shift in utilization of other ports besides Los Angeles. We're actually seeing more activity in the U.S. Midwest gateway. So we'll have impacts at the rail where importers can call or use the web to confirm that a container has arrived. And sometimes they'll think because it's arrived, you know, we should have picked it up already. But once it arrives, it has to be swung off the rail onto a chassis. Chassis are the, you know, wheelbase that goes underneath the container that the cab of the truck pulls up to and connects to and pulls out. So if chassis are not available or if the rail hasn't been able to work the train to get the container off, then 
for the forwarder's purposes, the cargo has not arrived yet. When the cargo is arrived and what we call grounded, then in the Midwest, the container location, the rail, or the steamship line will provide Midwest freight forwarders a pickup number. You have to have the pickup number on the delivery order to pick up the cargo. So usually what we're seeing is a couple or three or four days, depending on what rail ramp and what time of the month or year it is. And then we send in the trucker when we've got the pickup number, and they can still sit there for three or four hours to pick up the load. So, you know, three or four hours to a trucker is half of a day. That's like another load they could have gotten. I know on some of our stuff, we've had truckers sitting up in line for four or five hours, and by the time they finally get from L.A. to Orange County, we're closed, and they have to sit on the stuff and it delivers the next day. Yeah, it's, it's a mess, right? Yeah, and it's the same thing with air freight. I mean, Chicago O'Hare Airport, for example, had a very challenging peak season in the month of December. You know, I work closely with a lot of freight forwarders and brokers in in Chicago through our Brokers Association. Many of the airlines use a breakdown outsource provider to, you know, receive the, the built pallets and break them down and make them available. And the airport here is as robust for export purposes as it is for import purposes. On Saturdays in particular, we don't really send truckers to go pick up import because the doors are full taking export cargo to make lockouts for export bookings on the airlines. But the same type of thing happens where our truckers get in in line at the airlines and they wait for five, six hours to pick up everything they can get in their truck. So it's a real domino effect. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the conversation on the news and everything on the West Coast is how these guys are getting paid almost $1,200 a day. I understand crane operators, you know, those are kind of intense jobs, but, I mean, where where do you stand on all this? Do you think these guys are paid extremely well for work that a lot of other people would probably be hungry to do for that type of wage? Or, I mean, where's your standpoint on their wages and the whole union aspect of their <laughs> Yes, <business>? I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a lot of money. I'm sure it's hard work, and expediting and freight forwarding is is high-pressure work. It's hard to expedite, and it's like being an air traffic controller, really. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. I have been to the ports in Long Beach, so I certainly appreciate the complexity of, of the unloading process and so forth. But when you're getting paid, you know, 150000 a year, you should be able to endure quite a bit of stress. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and, and where else in the marketplace is it acceptable to, you know, just have a little bit of a fit and not work as hard because you're not totally smitten with the circumstances? I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people on social media are saying, you know, unions are the downfall of why America's lazy. There's been all kinds of content coming out about this thing, and I think this has really brought awareness to a lot of people about what unions are doing for the country. And, I mean, yes, I understand, and I'm a person that, yes, there should be unions in certain aspects, and I understand why it's good to have a union, but I really think these guys, the pay is insane for their type of work. 
Yeah, I think they're very useful, especially back when they were created, to, to make sure that people were not treated poorly and did not do jobs that risked their lives and had appropriate protection and, and so forth. But I do think in, in today's work climate in the U.S., it's highly unlikely that any dangerous circumstances are going to exist for very long that, that aren't you know, paid good attention to by the employer and they're going to get addressed. So I'm not yeah. sure that personally I think they're quite as useful and they're certainly very difficult in these kinds of situations where they are not facilitating U.S. business whatsoever. Yeah, myself and a couple other suppliers were joking the other day, and we're trying to make it more dangerous by trying to hire some Somali pirates to go and get our stuff off these ships, bring it to our <laughs> warehouses through Tijuana or something. But there seems to be a shortage of Somali pirates on the West Coast, which is a good thing, but at this time, a very bad thing. Jason, as, as you think about you know these impacts and, and you think about your customers, the promotional products distributors specifically in mind, is there any coaching or counseling that you would have them prepare their customers for whenever we can share information and share wisdom about what's happening with the supply chain of their products when they do run into issues where they can't get something they thought they could? Always better to have that knowledge in the forefront. So any advice or counsel you'd give to listening distributors on things they may do, if anything, actions they may take with their customers as a result of all this? Yeah, you know, as we know, this is a very last minute, I need it tomorrow type of industry. Be prepared. This isn't going to be a last-minute-I-need-it-tomorrow type of supply chain coming through to your customers. So try to balance and allocate way more lead time on projects, especially for projects that you know are large quantity that a lot of other suppliers won't do domestically. You know, us, unlike other suppliers, we do everything usually quickly, no minimum in five days in California, which is unheard of, but we're being impacted now. So be prepared for the lot of trickle-down effects. You know, a lot of suppliers might maybe jack up prices a little bit to allocate for the air freight costs and expense, you know, associated with that. We're keeping our pricing flat. We will not raise prices, but be prepared, you know, and ask your suppliers if there's going to be other kinds of rush fees and air freight fees that you might have to pay out of pocket offset some of this cost that they're experiencing. Yeah, and maybe keeping a little bit of inventory, whereas you might not normally in past times have done that. That costs a little bit. You have, you know, cost of capital and maybe cost of of keeping it somewhere, but as a contingency plan, you know, hoping that the ports clear out pretty soon, once the ports are cleared out, give some thought to contingency planning so that we're not in this kind of situation so badly in the future. Yeah. Good advice, Jaden. One other thing, too, is there are some good suppliers that do Made in USA products that at other times you might look at that product and say, hey, this is really expensive stuff. Now, you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck because that stuff's being made within our country, usually with our own supplies too. So you might pay a little more for it, but the ease of mind for yourself and your customer, I think it's well worth it. That last point Jane made on a little bit of excess inventory, if somebody was going to take that position, would that be a month's worth of inventory? Would that be a couple of months? What, how much time would you advise anyone that thinks of taking that strategy from a contingency plan standpoint? Well, I might recommend a couple months' worth of product, and keep in mind that this is all seasonal activity, so what we discuss here roughly applies to every year. Obviously, the length of the ILWU strike is much longer this year, but the annual trend of soft 
imports in January up and then a push of heavier traffic into the U.S. prior to peak season is an annual event. I mean, every year around Christmas time at least, I'm checking the exact date of Chinese New Year to understand how to, you know, manage my own labor, let's say, and what the near-term forecast is going to be in terms of incoming volumes. Then we expect a lull at the second week, let's say, of Chinese New Year, and then we're going to have some gradual building from March through June. Steamship contracts are renegotiated starting around usually March, April, and concluding with the major trend-setting importers normally around the 1st of May or 1st of June. So once the new pricing is basically established through the steamship companies, then by that time, June, most orders for Christmas, especially on large scale, have already been placed. So then typically June and July, maybe into August, are pretty busy. You have a little bit of lighter traffic sometimes in August associated with Europeans taking vacation and U.S. people, and then you got back to school. So September, October, November, and December are always usually pretty busy. So these are typical trends to be aware of. And, you know, during certain times of year, you could have a very small to zero inventory and be able to service your customers. But as those increased volume periods typically occur, you might, like I mentioned, increase your inventory turns, your your ordering cycle, and then maybe start to build a little bit of product that you can store at your freight forwarder's warehouse or your own. And then if you order a little bit and you see you have a little bit too much, then maybe during February again when that push is going on again, you might not need to order and you might be able to deplete that to help ease your cost of capital. Well, you know, for our listeners, I think this has been a a great uh, conversation in shipping and certainly the impact that that will have on their businesses and even consumer goods at large. Uh, Jason, anything else you want to throw in before we sign off and, and thank Jane for her time? Not really. I mean, I just, from a supplier standpoint, I really just hope this ends pretty quickly. But Jane, thank you as always for not just dropping some cool shipping and logistical knowledge on us, which I myself really enjoy. But thanks as always for being a breath of fresh air and from our standpoint, being a great shipping partner and helping us alleviate headaches time in and time out over and over again. My pleasure. We're we're really in the, you know, any providers that you have in the marketplace are really in the same spot. So, you know, that's why we have associations like the Chicago Brokers and the National Customs Brokers and Freight Forwarders Association. We have annual conferences and we have one conference in September where we all get together. We look at legislative policies that are about to be voted on. We have a lobbyist ourselves and and we go beat the halls of Congress and go talk to congressmen and senators and legislative aides and so forth to make sure that they understand the trade's position. So any of your local freight forwarders or myself would be happy to hear from any of the importing community at any time to help make sure your voice is heard and work the best that we all can with the government in terms of keeping the supply chain moving. 
And just for all the other like suppliers and distributors out there, there's um there's a petition going on in the industry right now, and we'll post the link on the PK site so you can go up and sign the petition and say you're you know supporting to end dispute as soon as quickly as possible. Great, thank you very much. Thank you, Jane. We we really appreciate it. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. Jason, thanks for instigating and inspiring this conversation as well. Thanks for having me.